Preferred Capital Funding presents the Result Podcast, a podcast where trial lawyers share a recent verdict or settlement and discuss how they achieved the result. The Result Podcast is brought to you by Preferred Capital Funding. PCF provides loans to your clients, all while providing the highest level of customer service and continuing to be 100% attorney referral based. If you have a client in need of a loan, please contact me at jason at pcfcash.com. Now let's hear from attorney Sidney McClafferty of Geyser, Bowman and McClafferty in Columbus, Ohio, about how PCF has been able to serve her and her clients. My clients have greatly appreciated having an attorney who has the resources to meet their needs quickly. PCF is a fast and accessible resource for my clients, allowing me to provide solutions to their most urgent concerns, whether that be funding for continuation of health insurance or money to replace a car so they can return to work. It's truly been a lifesaver for some. Today, the podcast is happy to welcome Courtney Werning of Meyer Wilson, headquartered in Columbus, Ohio. Courtney devotes her time representing investors that have claims against their investment advisors or investment firm. Her most recent cases have involved unsuitable investment strategies, fraud, misrepresentation, Ponzi schemes, legal malpractice, elder abuse, and Securities Act claims. On top of being active with the Ohio State Bar Association, Courtney is also a member of the Ohio Association for Justice, and the Public Investors Arbitration Bar Association, uh, also known as PIABA. Courtney, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So as with every episode, let's begin at the end. What was the monetary result of the case we'll be discussing today? So we settled the case for 1.75 million. Walk us through the details of the case. So it was um, on behalf of a couple in their mid seventies here in Columbus. These folks had successfully run a business for several years, decided to sell a portion of their business and then take that chunk of funds, which was about $5 million to a registered investment advisor, kind of manage that money that they had set aside for their retirement. Um, Once they got there, you know, they had the conversations with the investment advisor, like we all do about their investment objectives and the risk tolerance and their goals. And these, these people were um, very specific and that they wanted this money to last the rest of their lives. They were, um, you know, risk averse conservative investors and the investment advisor took all that information in and gave them a very poor recommendation, which resulted in a significant amount of loss to them about half of what they had saved to re- for retirement. I'm happy to go into the specifics of the investment if you want to learn a little bit more about it. No, please do. I think people would be very interested in that. So the investment was a small hedge fund, and I'm talking really small, run by like 10 people. Um, And that fund made short-term loans for commodity trading in Africa. So we're talking like, uh, you know, cargo ships of salt, coffee, beef, other commodities. Mm -hmm. And this first presented the clients as something that was really safe, steady returns, an opportunity for growth. Um, And so the clients readily agreed, Um, but what they didn't know or what they didn't understand and what they certainly weren't told was that this particular fund was incredibly speculative. Um, It was a liquid. It basically is um, a private placement that was formed in the Cayman Islands. It really lacked transparency in, in its finances. And it was so unbelievably unsuitable for these two retirees that, um, of course, they wouldn't have invested in it if they hadn't known any of the actual details about the fund. Mm-hmm. 
what do you think, what is the investment advisors there uh, incentive to put a couple like that into a risky fund like that? You know, usually you can kind of trace it back to getting like a front load commission. Um, you know, financial professionals sometimes will make recommendations because a particular investment pays them more than other investments. In this case, this was an investment advisor managing discretionary assets. And so the financial advisor was being paid a percentage of assets under management plus a straight quarterly fee. Um, unless there was some kind of undisclosed kickback from this particular hedge fund, there really wasn't any reason why this advisor would or should recommend this particular fund any over any other fund. So I can't really tell you what the motivation there was. You know, we mediated this case and we tried to kind of get to the bottom of it, but um, without actually going to trial, it's kind of hard to see why this particular fund was chosen. I know that other clients of the advisor were also put into this thing. Um, and so sometimes it's just the case of an advisor really believing in something um, as misguided as it was. Now, I'm assuming this was done as a part of the uh, arbitration process that you guys regularly use uh, for securities issues. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. In this case, the customer agreement between our clients and the investment advisor called for arbitration in front of AAA, the American Arbitration Association. And so we filed our case in AAA um, shortly thereafter. I think they recognized the strong liability that they had. Um, because we proceeded to mediation pretty soon after filing. In situations like this, for those that don't deal in this area, what is the typical recovery or what is a normal recovery in a situation like this for people that run into issues along these lines? So it, it kind of is a case-by-case -case circumstance. It's hard to really generalize um, overly. But typically what we would be considering, you know, a win walking out of arbitration or walking out of trial in Ohio, at least, is your net out-of-pocket loss. Um, and that's, you know, the amount of money you put into an investment minus the amount of money that you had gotten back. If you get any dividends or distributions, you know, minus any remaining value that might be in the investment. You know, Ohio has a very broad Securities Act in terms of liability and who is responsible but pretty limited damages. Um, the civil liability provision provides for, you know, the net out-of-pocket loss that I just described, but doesn't have any kind of provision for interest or attorney's fees or expenses, which is, is it's an anomaly, really. There, almost every state in the country has a, a fee-shifting provision in the Ohio Securities Act that um, in their own Securities Act that does allow for the recovery of attorney's fees in a prevailing claim. And Ohio is just kind of behind the times in that. Um, that's something that we work hard to, to push for and for Ohio investors. As a fellow Ohioan, I find that shocking. Um, for the, the majority of our listeners are uh, trial lawyers from around the country. Can you kind of walk from the start line to finish line here in the, I know, because I know the process for uh, securities issues is a little different than it, your standard like PI or MedMal case. Can you kind of walk us and use this case as an example on from when you bring it in to the process by which you get to resolution? Sure. Because most of these cases are in arbitration, um, the first thing we do when we see a good claim that we want to take and we have a viable defendant um, is figure out which arbitration form we're going to be in. 
Um, broker dealers typically, if you're suing a FINRA member broker dealer, you're going to wind up in FINRA dispute resolution. Um, and then otherwise, you basically have to look at the customer agreement. You know, where does the contract call for these cases to be resolved? Most often, we see these cases either sent to AAA or to JAMS. Every once in a while, we'll have one that doesn't have an arbitration clause and we'll wind up in court. But you know, once you file an arbitration claim, it proceeds very much like any other civil litigation case. Um, you know, we file a statement of claim, they file an answer. There's some time provided by the rules for written discovery. There's typically no depositions in arbitration. It's all written. Um, and you know, usually towards the close of that process, there's discussions about resolving the case. We we mediate a lot of our cases, maybe like 70, 75% of our cases go to mediation. But if you know we don't get it resolved, then we head to an arbitration hearing, um, an evidentiary hearing, just like you normally would with a trial, you know, opening statements, witnesses, documentary evidence, testimony, and closings. Instead of presenting to a judge and jury, you're presenting to whatever arbitrator that you get. In FINRA, you get three typically. And arbitrators can be just about anybody, um, lawyers, non-lawyers, anybody that applies to be a FINRA arbitrator and has, I think, five years of professional experience can be one. In fact, I would encourage all of the members to go ahead and apply to be a FINRA arbitrator um, so that we can sort of broaden the pool of arbitrators um, you know, that might be uh, fair to claimants in this, in this instance. Sometimes we get you know, sort of a, a stacked arbitration panel against us because you're really trying in, in these arbitration cases, you're trying cases to a panel of FINRA arbitrators. Well, they're being paid by FINRA, you know, the securities industry, essentially. Um, so sometimes I compare it to, you know, trying a case, a med mal case to a jury of doctors. You know, it's not mm -hmm. always a fair result. Um, but, you know, we have had a lot of really good arbitrators over the years, um, a lot of fair people who, you know, do mediations all across the state of Ohio as well. So that's sort of um, the whole process. And then after the evidentiary hearing, if you get that far, they typically have 30 days to deliberate and decide. And once you get that arbitration award, it is final and binding. Um, there's very rare instances in which you can ever appeal an arbitration award. Um, you basically would have to show that the arbitrators committed fraud and some sort of lack of disclosure of like business relationship with one of the parties. It's really, it's really strict. Hmm. Let, let's jump back now to uh, the couple that lost money with the small hedge fund. How did the couple discover that this had even occurred? Because uh, most anyone who has an investment advisor who gives them a kind of a cadre of things that they should do, you're looking at multiple, multiple, multiple investments across your entire wealth management system. How did they recognize that this individual fund had run them out? You know, they had been watching it pretty carefully because, you know, we've got some, some cautious investors and this represented a huge chunk of their money. We're talking about $2 million on a $5 million portfolio. I mean, that's something you would notice, right? If, mm -hmm. if the value starts to go down. And it did. I mean, he, he would get statements quarterly from this, this alternative investment. And um, there was a drastic loss reflected um, shortly before we ended up filing the case, a 91% loss. And I guess what had happened, and this is just demonstrative of how ridiculous this investment was. 
what had happened was one of the cargo shifts that was like an acquisition or a deal for this particular fund had been hit by another ship in a port and sank and like lost all the goods on that ship. So literally my client's retirement savings depended on one cargo ship making it to where it needed to go. And that's just insane. I mean, no investment advisor should ever recommend a huge amount of money to go into retirement savings that is that um, speculative, really. And I guess um, in, the, in this particular instance, you know, the insurance money that they had covered only a small fraction of the ruined cargo. And so the value literally um, just crashed because of that one bad deal. And so, you know, like I said, it's just indicative of how ridiculous it was to put a large chunk of retirement money into something like this. Thinking on the non-attorney side for a moment, if you're getting your quarterly statements from your uh, investment house or investment advisor, what should people be looking at? And what is the difference? What is the glaring difference between standard loss because the risk of putting money into an investment account and an investment where they might want to explore or uh, look into it deeper to see if there's something there? That's a great question. So, um, you know, obviously in getting your statements, you want to make sure that you're aware of what you're invested in. I always say that if an advisor can't explain it to you in layman's terms and you can't understand it, then it's probably not something you should be invested in. Um, But assuming that, that you have been explained it, you do understand it, you know, watch the value. If you see drops in, in the net asset value of these particular alternative investments, then it's time to call up your advisor and ask some questions. I would argue that my clients should have never been, it, been in it in the first place because they literally didn't have time to react to the type of value drop. Um, not only that, but this fund was a liquid. So once they're in it, they really can't do anything about it anyways. But you know, for, for your traditional investment portfolio, um, you should number one, understand it. Number two, keep track of it. Um, And if you're in that situation where, you know, you've got um, elderly parents or somebody else that, you know, might need just help sort of understanding what's going on in their finances, you can always ask brokerage firms or investment advisors to add a trusted contact to your account so that your child or, you know, your CPA or your lawyer, whoever gets duplicate copies of statements so that you're not just having one set of eyes who maybe don't really understand what's going on. You have two sets of eyes and a trusted contact that can sort of um, bring up questions as they arise. For all the attorneys we have that uh, subscribe, what is something that they can take from your experience in this particular brand of practice and potentially apply to their own practice or learn how to identify cases to benefit them? Well, I would just say that um, securities fraud and securities misconduct is pre- it's unbelievably prevalent. Um, and most of the time, people who have claims with relating to investment losses don't really understand that they have a claim. Um, I always compare it to, you know, personal injury work. Through the good work of trial lawyers over the years, most people who are, you know, rear-ended at a red light and suffer injuries they're aware that they have some kind of a claim that they can pursue you know, recourse for. But in the instance of investment losses, it's um, you know, widely misunderstood that, and people just don't think that 
they have any right to recovery if they are in an investment that ends up losing money. And it's true that, you know, financial professionals aren't insurers of the market. Um, but since the stock market has been going up steadily for the last 10 years, which is a slight anomaly last year, but is back up, um, you know, any investment that you're in should be making money. There's no excuse not to be. So if you have investment losses, I mean, I would almost go as far as to say, if you have investment losses now, and then something went wrong and you should have somebody take a look, somebody like us who understands these types of claims, take a look just to see, you know, is there something there? Um, you know, cause in an up market, sometimes it, it's just hard to tell whether something is unsuitable or suitable because everybody's making money. Um, and, and if you are losing money, then there's likely something wrong and you can, um, you can get these cases a number of ways. Um, you know, we get a lot of referrals from accountants, um, other estate lawyers, you know, people who are sort of on the, the front lines of learning about this stuff um, often they're the ones who are alerting people to a particular problem and so you know we get a lot of calls from those folks in terms of you know hey can you at least take a look to see if this is something that you know might be actionable interesting only have uh, a couple more questions here before we wrap up one being what is the most common type of securities case that you have uh, run into during your experience I would say by volume, um, these types of alternative investment cases. So, and there's a variety of different investments that fall under that umbrella, but we're talking about non-traded real estate investment trusts and private placements primarily. Those types of securities are um, illiquid, non-traded, you can't go out and sell it in any kind of public market and have caused investors an insane amount of losses um, over time, um, especially non-traded REITs, these real estate investment trusts. There's really never any reason for an investor to be buying a non-traded REIT. They're not usually bought, they're sold because they, like I was saying before, they come with an, a very large upfront commission and so brokers are enticed to sell these products. Mm -hmm. um, but their counterparts, the traded REITs, have outperformed them um, by leaps and bounds. I mean, there's no, there's no denying the difference in how they perform. Non-traded REITs, you know, up to like 14% of that money goes right to paying selling commissions and fees. And so you're only putting to work 85, 86% of your money um, in the actual investment. And it, it, numbers like that just don't add up. I mean, it's, it's basically ensuring that the investor is going to lose money. And so a lot of my practice over the last 10 years has been these types of alternative investments. I have a feeling after listening to this, you're going to have a lot of people getting online and uh, checking what all they're invested in as we sit here today. Um, yeah, and give me a call. <laughs> there you go. Courtney, is there anything else that we missed or anything else you want to cover before we wrap up? I don't think so. I just, you know, remind remind the listeners that these cases are out there. They're prevalent um, Ohio, in Ohio and across the country. And these cases are a lot of fun. I like these arbitration cases. It's like the wild, wild west of litigation because you never really know what's coming. But, you know, if anybody has any questions about the investment claim process, I'd be happy to talk to them. How do they get a hold of you? Um, my email address is cwerning. W-E-R-N-I-N-G at MeyerWilson.com or they can call my direct line 614-384-7038.
Perfect. Courtney, I really appreciate you taking the time today to come on with us. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jason.